This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story, and it's time for our culture beat, and we love to talk about what's on TV. We love it. By the way, in the night of HBO's new show, terrific. Just check it out. I mean, it's as good a law and procedural as you've ever seen. Richard Price, the great writer, written the screenplay. Fantastic. And we love Shark Tank, and we also love Judge Judy. You are about to enter the courtroom of Judge Judith Scheindlin. The people are real. The cases are real. The rulings are final. This is Judge Judy. And we love this show. And luckily for me, I've had a change in my schedule. So now I'm home a lot of times when this thing's coming on. And I watch it. And now I'm, I'm addicted to it. I mean, I just, if it's on, I'm watching. I don't yep. care if I'd seen it before. She's so entertaining. And by the way, there's a lot of deep social and cultural stuff going on in that show. And personal responsibility is a big one for her. And lying and cheating. I mean, she's just like old school. And so we're taking a look at a case right now. And this episode uh, involves a very animated plaintiff, a 30-something-year-old apartment renter named Karina Roy. The defendant's name is Nicole, a 50-something who is Karina's landlord. Judge Judy opens with a description of the roommate's complaint. Miss Roy, according to your complaint, you rented a room in defendant's home. Yes. You had an argument over Tupperware. Yes. As a result of that argument, you say you were assaulted, given an eviction notice, forced to move. You want the defendant to pay you for the assault, pro rata for the rent, your moving expenses. Tell me about the argument. And here's Karina's very interesting argument. Well, um, the morning of June 6th, I woke up and um, I had been looking for my Tupperware throughout that week. And What um, Tupperware? This Tupperware right here. Oh, that Tupperware. Yeah, that Those Tupperware. Those two pieces. Yes. <laughs> So throughout the week and in the morning before work and everything, that's when I had time to ask her. And this was the third time that I had asked her for my Tupperware, and she was changing the subject when two other times I wasn't getting um, direct answers, and where she was directing me, they weren't there. Like the first time I asked her... I'm not interested. Okay. Just get to the so point. So I said, look, if I don't get my Tupperware back, I'll just take it off my rent. And she said, well, don't you dare. And she threw her blankets off her, with, which every morning... Just a second. Are you telling me you went into her bedroom? Yes. To ask let me finish my question. You went into her bedroom to ask for those two pieces of Tupperware? Yes. For the and she was in bed? Uh, yes. <laughs> so the landlord was in bed and threw her blankets off. Karina continues. Go ahead. So she threw her blankets off. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. But, you know, every other... Just man- answer the question. <laughs> I mean, she threw her blankets off mm-hmm. and said what? Don't you dare, you know, and she threw her blankets off and she ran to the door and slammed it open. She said, I ate it. And she stormed into the kitchen and I followed her and she um, opened her Tupperware cupboard and um, forced all of her Tupperware on me like that. Let me explain something to you. Don't get dramatic with me. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. So she... And threw all of her Tupperware on me. She didn't throw all of her Tupperware on you. Yes, she did. Yes, did she, she did. Miss Roy, you're standing there, so what is what you're telling me? She took out each piece of Tupperware from the cupboard and threw it at you? No. She has a Tupperware cupboard, and she put her arm on one end of that Tupperware cupboard, and with all of her force, threw it on me, and I was standing behind her, and it landed on me. Is that the assault that you're talking about? That's one of them, yes. <laughs> but there's more. <laughs> and when was the other one? 
Then she kept standing there and screaming, you know, how dare you, and don't you dare, don't you even dare, Karina, shame on you, shame on you. Shh, listen to me. Like this. I hear you. Okay, go ahead. Well, this is what she was yelling at go me. Go ahead. And I said, you know, Cole, you said you were going to take care of my Tupperware, and, every, you know, and on Sunday your maid came, and I haven't seen him since. And she said, there's your answer, Karina. Look in that cupboard there. Look in that one. And I, ran, I go over there, and I open it up, and it's kind of on the ground, so I kneel down, and there's my Tupperware, and I grab it. And when I'm down, she's leaning her whole body into me, pointing her finger in my face. How dare you? Don't you even dare. Shame on you. That's it. I want you out of here. And she hit my head with her finger. She had all of her weight on me next karina is careening out of control she isn't finished so what happened next so then i got up and i'm just like backing away i'm like backing away i'm walking out of the kitchen you know and um she threw her hand up and that's it karina i want you out of here in 30 days and i said good and anna stood up and said hey and looking directly at me and said hey hey the babies the babies as she's looking at me and I had not said anything through this whole entire time. What did she say? The babies. The babies. Hey! Quiet. Judy now turns to the defendant, the landlord. Okay, so you gave her a 14-day notice. My assistant and I decided... Shh. Okay. You have a problem with giving her her prorated rent? Um, I do, Your Honor, because although she physically moved out, her property was still in, in the room. I don't consider that a cup and her teddy bear leaving property in the house so that you couldn't yeah. rent the room again if you wanted to. All right. Now, next. You want her to pay your moving expenses. Is that right? Yes. Wrong. So like, we just dealt with that. You don't get your moving expenses. And so what about, what about the payment for damages this poor lady received from her landlord's Tupperware assault? Now, damages due to the assault... I'm prepared to hear you if you want to tell me what your damages were as a result of the assault. Because of this, I mean, the way I physically felt, okay, was just like somebody just ripped my, I mean, I just felt hollow in here. I mean, I felt, I did not, I was, did Jeez. not feel stable at all. My driver You're not stable. <laughs> Anybody that walks into a bedroom, somebody's sleeping in their bed, to ask for two pieces of Tupperware and start an argument with them while they're in bed over two pieces of Tupperware isn't too stable. Okay. So Karina got leaned on and hit on the head with a finger and made it feel hollow inside her. Her heart was ripped out and her made her feel unstable. Here's Judge Judy awarding Karina for her early apartment dismissal. We also get their reactions. $199.92. That you are entitled to. Thank Judgment you. for the plaintiff in the amount of $199.92. Thank you. You want to give it back a bear? Certainly. Perfect. Bird, would you take care of the bear in the cup? Sure. Parties are excused. You may step out. She fought with all the tenants. She fought with me. She fought with my two sons who don't even live there anymore. Absolutely not. I'm such a meek, shy person. I bowed down to them and I stayed out of their way. Meek and shy. Definitely not, Karina. Well, we love Judge Judy. We love Shark Tank. Yeah. And we bring one or the other every week here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's National Adoption Month, and throughout the month, we'll bring you stories that we hope will move you and possibly inspire you to adopt. And today's story comes from my own church, Pine Lake Church in Oxford. And it's a story about one of our members. Uh, I'm TJ. I'm Brandy. And we recently adopted a little boy named Jack from China and are in the process of bringing home our daughter, Macy Lou. When we first got married, I was pretty adamant. I was just like, no children. If you have me, this is what it is. It's us and this life that I want. The bigger house and the travels and the freedom. So we got married and enjoyed you know, all our little luxuries and everything. I think two years into the marriage, he started talking about children and I was just, I shut it down completely. I was just like, nope, that's, I even said, I don't think that's what God wants for me. I, I just wasn't open to it and basically saying no to God. I just remember thinking, I don't know if I could do that. I guess maybe I didn't feel worthy of it. I had no idea when we were having those baby fever conversations that her no was coming from a place of, of unworthiness. And he finally said, um, do me a favor, just pray about it. And um, I did. It was amazing how God changed my heart through those prayers. The adoption kept coming up in my heart. My little brother is adopted, and um, he, I was 12 when he came home. And I remember the joy that he brought into the family. So I was just like, yeah, I, I think if we do this, I would like to see about adoption. Church did this thing about five years ago, Outlive Your Life, and there was a lot of adoption talk through that process. And one sermon was about adoption. We want to care for orphans, 147 million of them in the world. And we believe God wants us to be a part of making a dent in that population and helping these people that God has a heart for. He looked at me and he said, um, I think we have a child out there that we need to go get. And I said, absolutely, yes, so we need to go get our child. We both sort of kind of changed what we thought and what we had pictured. And that started the process of getting our son home. We were told going into it that it was a roller coaster. Paperwork, home study, I mean, constant, like a second job. In the adoption process, they'll send you some pictures and maybe some video and then a little personality profile. They said that, you know, he was just a really happy child yeah. and he loved to sing. We saw his face and we were just like, oh my goodness, this is why we're doing this. Actually meeting Jack, I remember him walking in and I knew it was him. That instant, I became a mom. God chose me out of all people to care for this little boy. I didn't know what to say, I didn't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> I guess that's when my unworthiness started kicking in. I, I felt so weak in that moment. Remember when we got on the bus to leave, we was like, they're letting us leave with this kid. <laughs> and, and, and by this time we're on the bus, you know, Jack is all about Brandy, like this is mom. And I'm mm -hmm. like, you know, he's like, okay, you over there, I'm with mom. And, and he sat in her lap and they started, uh, you know, wiping their hands on the window of the bus and making a mess. And he put his hand here and then she put her hand on him. Yeah. Uh, it was really hard for me because, you know, I was the one that had the baby fever and I, I, I you know, was pushing this from the start. And I had a child that I so badly wanted to give my love to who 
were just rejecting me. God showed me a perfect picture of how we treat Him and how He wants to, to love us mm -hmm. and how we just reject His love over and over. I mean, Jack broke my heart a lot and then he'd give me a little bit and I would just eat it up. It just took him a little while to understand what a family was, but once he got it, I mean, he loves it. Yeah. yeah. He loves his time with his dad. He's still a mama's boy. She's number one, but he recently went to Walmart with his aunt and got a Paw Patrol shaving kit and like wanted daddy. to come home and he just wants me, Daddy, can we shave together? <laughs> and, uh, it's, yeah. it's he definitely just, loves you. Yeah, he does. Mm -hmm. He does. I don't think there's a better picture of what God does for us whenever he adopts us into his family, whenever we accept him and we're saved. This is our mission. This is where God wants us. Jack loves family. Anytime he gets to play with friends or cousins, it's it's the best thing ever. He'll want a family. He's like, family hug time, yeah. and we all got a three and with our dog, all Both. four of us <laughs> hugging. And that's been really fun with Jack, is just to get to know who Jack is. Mm -hmm. And I'm ready to do that with Macy Lou. And I just find it amazing how God can take something broken and use someone like me who feel a little unworthy and don't feel like I have the ability to make something so beautiful and amazing. And he would have never, never known that if we didn't say yes to God. And that again comes from my little church in my little town of Oxford, Mississippi, and God calls people to do this. But sometimes people adopt who aren't Christians or not religious people, and they do it because their conscience calls them. And that's the great thing about our country. We do great things for all kinds of different reasons, secular, religious. And when people adopt, they're doing the most beautiful thing in the world. And now we bring you a second story, this one from a famed actress, Diane Keaton, who never desired to be a mother until something profound happened to her. And it led her to adopt her first child at the age of 50. And she now has two little boys. What led her to do that at that point in her life? Here's Diane. Well, it had a lot to do with my father's passing. My father went many years before my mother. And he had a brain tumor, and he was gone. And I moved back to California. And I think that I had to address what I was going to do with the remainder of my life. And uh, that really was a motivating factor for me. Uh, obviously, you know, I wasn't... Uh, propelled to do that earlier because I think quite frankly that I liked being a daughter <laughs> I really enjoy being a daughter I don't think I wanted to be um, somebody who could take those um, you know parenthood on until I had to uh, accept that I had to move on and so it's the death of her father that propelled her the couple before is it God's calling Again, the motivations are different, but the follow-through and the act of love, boy, it's like a good golf swing. Through the ball, they all look the same. Here's Diane Keaton on what motherhood has meant to her. Oh, my God. Well, so, you know, motherhood is, of course, uh, it's by far the best choice I ever made. What can I say? I'm not going to cry about it. <laughs> And um, it's just uh, too profound. It is too profound, and that's why we love bringing these, story, these stories. Again, this great Hollywood icon doing the same thing in the end, 
that this couple here in Little Oxford, Mississippi did for different reasons, but it doesn't matter. And in the end, anytime you're helping a complete stranger, you're doing something absolutely beautiful. And kudos to you, Diane Keaton. At 50, you probably got every raised eyebrow in the book from everybody you know. But my goodness, for those kids to know some love for as long as you're alive from a total stranger and to have a mom, it's fantastic. And thanks to the folks at Pine Lake, uh, our great church here in Oxford, and all the wonderful people who are really pushing the adoption message. And there are a bunch of churches in Mississippi who are trying to push 200 adoptions and I think ultimately get it to 1,000. And I think if we could put a number and a face on these things as a country and bring more of these stories and hopefully get folks to imitate those stories, what a wonderful thing. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. It's National Adoption Month. And, well, we spend a lot of time on this, and I don't think anyone else in the country is doing that. And for me personally, uh, The Blind Side did it for me. Uh, I had helped Michael Lewis with that book when I was doing a lot of national radio and we got that story out there. And Sean and Leanne Tui, who really were the focus of that story, if you remember, that couple in Memphis who took in that kid that was just wandering down the street, that big, tall kid named Michael Orr. Uh, that book really, it, it touched my heart. Ultimately, the, the book became a hit through deep connections to the Christian community who really rallied behind that film because so many Christians do adopt and they felt like this was showing Christian couples in a really good light, not showing what they were against, but what they were for. And the, the Tuies had told anybody who would listen that the greatest honor they had were the thousands of emails they got from people who said, thanks for doing what you did. And we watched and read The Blind Side, and we've decided to adopt ourselves. And so if there's anything about storytelling that means the most to us here at Our American Stories, it's the imitative power of storytelling. So again, if you've got an empty house or empty rooms in your house, the kids are gone, and you're wondering what to do with the rest of your life, you're bored, I promise you, within spitting distance of your house, there are people who need adoption. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. I was looking for a change of scene You were looking at a magazine It was red carpets and limousines The grass seemed so much greener All we wanted was to get there fast So we packed up everything we had Running on hope and a tank of gas Like dreams ain't just for dreamers We couldn't wait this is our American stories and we love to tell stories about just about everything and occasionally we do some interesting public policy stories but only as they hit the pavement that is when they affect you the listener and as one of our great partners for these stories just happens to be the folks at the Illinois Policy Institute, Illinois' premier think tank. And today they bring us the story of Alex Schmidt, a lifelong Illinoisan who moved from Illinois 
to Houston, Texas. And Alex, I'm going to start with you. What about Illinois made you move? Really, it started back in 2006. There was a 40% increase in the property taxes. And at that time, that's a, that's a pretty significant increase. And at that time, I really started scratching my head, wondering, um, you know, were there any limits to this? And come to find out that, no, there really weren't limits. And really, since that time, uh, having a lot of friends and family that left the state, checking to, you know, what they pay in real estate taxes and other taxes, and finding out that Illinois was really on the high end of the scale. And it didn't seem that that would uh, change anytime soon. You know, we had done a story uh, a few months back uh, on, on something very similar and I think it's because I had written a column. My dad left the state of New Jersey because he had paid $30,000 for a home in 1961, Alex. And when my mom died, he said, son, come on up, pack the bags. I got to move. And I said, why, dad? He goes, ah, I just, you know, he wouldn't tell me. But when I was looking through the tax records, it became very clear. His first property tax bill in New Jersey was something about $200 a year. And again, he paid $30,000 for his home. His mortgage payment was like 280 bucks a month. Well, he retired that mortgage fast, Alex. But his property taxes in 2012 were almost $13,000. Two and a half years of property taxes were almost as much as he paid for his entire house. I know why my dad moved. He couldn't afford to live in the house he owned. It had a co-owner named the state of New Jersey. And it was raising taxes every year, and he didn't know where that was going. And it sounds to me like, in large respect, and thanks to the Illinois uh, Policy Institute, we're learning that more and more families are fleeing their own state because they've got a co-owner of their homes, and they don't know what's coming next in terms of a bill, Alex. No, that's pretty much spot on. And again, I, I really want to thank the Illinois Policy Institute. I know their intent is not to scare people to leave the state. It's really to educate folks. So I'm, I know I'm not what they intended, but but you are absolutely right. I think in Lake County now, uh, 18 years is what it takes, and, and you're repaying for your house every 18 years because of the property tax rates. And I really felt uh, sad for folks who couldn't afford that kind of a property increase. Fortunately, I could, but when there's no restraint, you, you really can't trust government. And where's that money going, do you think? I mean, as a citizen, you're, you know, you're watching this happen, and you're watching the taxes increase and and we'll obviously we'll talk to the expert in the next segment. But as a but as a citizen, where do you think that money's going, Alex? Well, I started paying attention to my uh, my tax bill back in 2006 when they had that large spike, and approximately 75 percent of of taxes I was paying was going to the school district, of which half of that went to teacher pensions. So at the time, I was paying roughly a thousand a month. It's easy math. I mean, 750 went to the school district, and of that, half of it went 375 uh, a month to school pensions. So I, I think a lot of the issue in Illinois Policy Institute does a great job of pointing this out is the unrestrained growth in pensions. And a lot of times these were, were just unsustainable pensions that were given to a lot of the public uh, servants. And, and I don't begrudge anyone for what they make and what they can get in pensions. You know, God bless America. But at some point you have to look at the sustainability of being able to maintain that over a period of time. And Illinois is just on the wrong track. Yeah, and you know what happens when more people leave then the fewer people left behind have to pay more and you get this vicious negative cycle. And one thing that I, that I think is really clear, moving is hard. Uh, you know, when businesses leave and they leave one state to go to another or where families leave, it's generally, it's less that they want to leave but that they feel compelled to leave. 
Talk about that, because I actually think that there should be a term for this, and it should be American refugees, because they're actually fleeing their own governments, and they really don't want to. They like where they live. They just feel like no one's listening to them, and so they exercise Plan B. Find a state that's more hospitable to them. Talk about that. And you're you're exactly right with that, too. With... Um and, and my, I'm very lucky. I'm fortunate to have a job as long as I'm close to a major airport. I can travel anywhere through the U.S., so I'm fortunate in that I am able to do that. But your average Illinois taxpayer can't do that. They're really stuck to their location because they don't have the means to be able to do that. And, again, Illinois Policy Institute had a great article about the number of uh, individuals leaving the state of Illinois. I think it was 2014, 114,000 taxpayers left the state. They also had a great article uh, earlier this year about – the number of uh, millionaires leaving the city of Chicago was equivalent to those leaving Russia and Greece, which are two failing economies. And the point of that article was that really it's, uh, the millionaires are like the canary in the coal mine. They have the resources to go wherever they want to go within this country easily. It's that, that poor uh, middle-class person, uh, poor in the sense of that they have no choice, like you mentioned, you know, middle-class person who doesn't have the resources. They're, they're married to their job and their location. They can't do that. And I, I was very fortunate I, I could move, but you're, you're spot on. That's exactly one of the uh, the biggest issues is being able to have the luxury of moving and if you don't you're, re- you're really stuck there and there's nothing you can do your taxes are going up because the tax base is, is leaving in droves yep and talk about why texas and your experience in houston how did it change your standard of living how did it change your life and leaving chicago behind my goodness you had to leave all that food behind too alex that had to be tough yeah it is there the way I, I put it to folks is that Chicago is a world-class city, you know, hands down. It's one of the top cities in the world. I, I liken it to Houston being it's a big town. It's a town with 2.6 million people in it. It really doesn't have any of the world-class venues like Chicago has, but that's not to say Houston in and of itself isn't a good town. There's really, really nice folks that live here. But again, within Chicago, you've got all the infrastructure for the, the theaters, the arts, the uh, beautiful lakefront and what it really came down to is those were things that in an average year I probably took advantage of two or three times. Typically when people visited me from out of town, that's when I, I lived in Highland Park, we'd go into the city, take advantage of that. And then when I did the actual uh, math and looked at what I would be saving since Texas is a no-tax state, no personal income tax, that came out to a little over $1,100 a month. And at that point, you know, that was a no-brainer. That was just too staggering a difference. If we were talking like two or 300 a month difference, I'm staying in Illinois. But the delta between uh, living in Houston versus Chicago, and likewise for the house that I uh, bought in Houston, live in a great area of Houston, north of the city called uh, Cyprus. Really wonderful. My house is about 60% larger, and I'm paying $600 less a year in, in taxes than uh, when I left Highland Park. Yeah, so you're getting twice as much home for less in property taxes, and you're also saving $1,100 every month, which is like a bonus. Actually, and you know, I you get a raise without getting a raise. You get a, raise, get a raise without, without getting, getting a raise. Isn't that wonderful? On April fifteenth, you told Alex, our our our, our great uh, contributor here and field correspondent, producer, and just all around go to guy. You told him on April fifteenth, I felt like a little kid getting a pay raise, and uh, that's not enough Americans being able to say that, Alex, and that's really tragic. Yeah, particularly since Chicago, Chicago's awesome city. I absolutely love Chicago. Uh, my greatest fear is, is Chicago, uh, being someone who loves that city, is it's probably 20 to 30 years away from becoming Detroit. The benefit Chicago has, unlike Detroit, is the economic base in Chicago is much more divorce, uh, diverse, whereas Detroit was really tied to the auto industry. 
But unless they do something in the state of Illinois and Chicago, you are looking at uh, an eventual Detroit outcome. And I, I really, I don't want to see that happen. No, and I think none of us do. And I think it, it actually had to hurt you to leave, but you had to protect your family and your capital and do what's best. And again, regrettably, too many people don't have that option. And elected officials, well, they're just not taking care of business. They're kicking the can down the road for their own personal gain. And that's getting elected instead of solving the people's problems. Up next... Well, we'll be talking to the experts and the policy experts from Illinois Policy Institute. This is Our American Stories, where people are moving from, where they're moving to, moving in America. More after these messages. stories moving in America. We just spoke to Alex Schmidt, a lifelong Illinoisan who moved to Houston, finally just couldn't handle the, the taxes and the never-ending spiraling increases in property taxes. And joining us now is Austin Berg, who brought us this story. Austin, and before we dig into some things, your reaction to what you just heard with Alex uh, and me talking together, uh, just your, your, your initial reaction. Sure. Uh, the saddest part about it is that I talk to people like Alex every week. He's far from an outlier. There are families being forced from their homes uh, to other states, uh, to neighboring states, to, to no-income tax states like Texas and Florida. And if I'm starting a moving business, I'm, co- I'm coming to Illinois. And at this point, there, people are practically, U-Haul's practically paying people to take empty vans back from Texas to Illinois to load them up again and take that same journey. Uh, and, and that's really sad as someone who's from Illinois myself as well as Alex. Yeah, and by the way, that just that U-Haul story, a, a colleague did a, of yours did a fascinating analysis and summary of what's going on there. It costs a whole lot more to go from Illinois to Texas than it does to go from Texas to Illinois. What's going on there, Austin? Well, it's simple supply and demand. Uh, and, of course, the people can, who can afford to pay these high U-Haul fees uh, out of Illinois are the same people who are moving. You have people, as Alex mentioned, people of means are the ones moving out of the state. It's not, it's not poor people leaving uh, because they have not yet uh, – the tax bill has not yet come to bear, and it's, t- it's difficult, um, obviously, to – change uh, change your lifestyle, change your school, change everything um, when you're already struggling with lots of different issues. But we see from the IRS data, we see from the census data, that the people overwhelmingly leaving Illinois are higher income earners than the people coming in. And the people leaving are the most mobile individuals, which is millennials. That's the largest out-migration group we have in Illinois. And Illinois as a whole has, has the worst out-migration uh, in the Midwest by a long shot. By the way, one of the things you don't want to export is your talent. Um, this is not good. Your human capital. I mean, it's one thing when capital flees, but when human capital flees too, um, that's a real disaster for a state, isn't it, Austin? It's terrible. And you see uh, all these 
brilliant engineers uh, coming out of the University of Illinois, out of schools in Chicago. And sometimes they'll be able to find opportunity. Of course, if you have a great education, you're willing, you're willing to work hard, you can find a job. But how long do you want to put up with uh, trying to put down roots and paying more in property taxes than you're doing on your mortgage? Um, for a kid who's used to hailing a taxi on my smartphone, that is not that is not a modern uh, way of doing business. How am I supposed to set down roots for my family? As or Alex had the same thought. When I don't know if one year my bill's going up 40%, if it's going up 50%, and when will that ever end? Yeah, no, I could see it when I was looking at my dad's property tax bills, and I know what he was making in his pension. And I went, oh, my goodness, this property tax bill is literally going to, in another 10 years, if it goes up at this rate, it is his pension. It's going to take up his whole pension. And I, my, my breath almost got taken away because I saw a snapshot in one little box, in one little folder in that box, of a man who lost his house to his state. It's crazy uh, in the end, Austin. And what, 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 are, what are we doing when we lose our, our, our folks in our state who make the most money? How do we make up for that revenue loss on the state level, Austin? Well, somebody's got to pay the bill, right? And, and it's not just people moving. And I think this is important. When people move, it's not just their income. It's, uh, it's the services that they provide to their neighbors. It's the mom who drives the kids to soccer practice. It's the people who bring, uh, you know, snacks to the bake sale. These are, this is the fabric of a lot of communities in Illinois is being completely torn apart by this bill. And a lot of communities are being hollowed out. And what I mean when I say that is you have, as Alex did, a property tax bill going 75% to the school, which is great. I mean, local communities can make these types of choices. They want to value education higher. Great. Put 75% of the money towards education. But what community in their right mind would want to put half of that money to retirement costs? That's just absurd. And you have uh, in Illinois a lot of school districts where you'll have a teacher contributing a few tens of thousands of dollars to their retirement over the course of their career and making something, making a pension that someone in the private sector would have, have to save one to two million dollars at retirement to earn that same benefit. It's just fundamentally unfair. I think that's something to dig into here at this at this moment, Austin, is the comparison between not only the pension uh, payouts in terms of dollars, but also benefits. Talk about the difference between your typical Illinois resident when it comes to the private sector pension and their health care benefits and folks, for instance, in, let's say, the state teachers uh, union and association. Sure. So at the state and and local government in Illinois, there has become a protected class. And what I mean when I say that is there are more units of government in Illinois than any other state by a long shot, by about 2,000 units of government. So you have people like Alex um, paying a tax bill where there are 13 different taxing bodies on there. Uh, and it's impossible. If you're just a, a, a regular taxpayer, how are you supposed to hold 13 different agencies accountable for their spending? What they do is just decrease it a little more every year, and that it's, it's compounding interest, the most powerful force uh, in the universe. And that just goes; those bills go up and up and up and up. And there's no accountability. When, when uh, your industry tanks in the private sector, there's mass layoffs, um, there's restructuring, uh, there's innovation. But in Illinois, that's not the case. And you, and I think it really is fundamentally about unfairness. You have, for instance, the, uh, the largest government sector union in the state, AFSCME, which represents uh, many state workers. They receive health care benefits that 
you or I could not even purchase on the Obamacare exchange. They're not, they're not even available. They're platinum level benefits for, for bronze level prices on top of getting free health care for life after retirement. Uh, it's unsustainable. No matter what, what you value in your government, that is not something that you can keep doing without people like Alex leaving the state to no, go to another state. It's so true. And I, I say, I'll add something. It's not just unsustainable. It's unfair when, when the folks who are serving the public have better benefits than the people paying those public servants. And they're not carrying their fair share. My copay goes up. Everyone's copaying and copays and deductibles are going up. We all have much more skin in the game with our health care, even more than we might like. Meanwhile, the people who are our public servants and the retirees are just, as you said, it's a, it's a great term. They're a protected class. What, why hasn't there been an uprising in Illinois like there had been in the state of Wisconsin? And we don't do a deeply political show. So for those of you listening in Wisconsin, you had a, a governor and, a, and ultimately a statehouse that really went after this unfairness, uh, this, these very large public pension union uh, benefits packages that were crippling the taxpayers and hardworking private taxpayers of the state of Wisconsin. Well, I can tell you people are sick and tired of it, and I've talked to actually a few different activists up uh, in the northern counties of Illinois. One's name is Bob Anderson. He's been a barber for 50 years, and he lives in a community now where the property tax bill is more than it cost to buy a house when he was growing up there. And people come into his barbershop every day and say, listen, Bob, I can't do it. I'm on a fixed income as a senior. I can't pay this bill anymore. I'm leaving. So this is an old, kind-hearted man who has watched his community be completely torn asunder by, by property tax bills. And he started a movement to start paying his property tax bills in $1 bills. And it got a ton of media attention across the state, and he's organized. And this is just a, just a regular guy, a barber, a former school bus driver, uh, from the northern part of the state, and I think that's really encouraging. That That is encouraging. You know, I'll leave with this, and just a short answer, if you could. A Paul Simon Public Policy Institute poll found that nearly half of registered Illinois voters said they would leave the state if they could. And of those who wanted to leave, 27% said taxes were the primary reason. That's just just tragic, Austin. That's a, that's a catastrophe. Hey, it brings a tear to your eye when you're from you're from a place that no one no one wants to be from anymore, and and I think that's happening to families like Alex. It's happening to to people across the state. Well, we appreciate all the great work you do at the Illinois Policy Institute, and I think these human stories about where people are moving from and where they're moving to, and nobody who's ever moved thinks moving's fun. Nobody I know says, "Oh, I think I'll just pack up my house." and move to some other state where I don't know anybody. Uh, it's really hard, and especially if you've got a family. And my goodness, if you have employees, Austin, it's just got to be wrenching to have to close your doors and move some of those folks with you and leave others behind. So thanks for all the work you do at the Illinois Policy Institute. And, and just, Alex, just real quick with you, how's life in Texas? Uh, it's wonderful. we got um, 85 degrees. Beautiful day. No more uh, snow, but it's the, you know, it's knowing that uh, what I'm saving in taxes is going towards my daughter's uh, uh, future and her education. That, that's a really good thing to know. Yeah, $1,000 a month times a whole bunch of years. Folks who are listening, do the math. 12000 a year, 10 years, that's one hundred and twenty. 
20 years, that's 240. Get it in any decent investment, let that money compound, and that's a million bucks in 30. That's crazy. And that's rational, making that move that Alex made. Thanks so much to both of you. Austin Berg of the Illinois Policy Institute. Alex Schmidt, a lifelong Illinoisan who moved to the great state of Texas and to the really, really growing and gigantic. Actually, Houston's just so darn big, I dare you to try and drive through it in a day. It's just a wonderful, wonderful polyglot of every kind of culture. And certainly, you can't caricature Houston or the state of Texas anymore. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, Moving in America. our American stories and we love to tell stories about sports and so let's get right into it because you're about to hear a speech you should have heard but didn't maybe a clip or two we're going to give you the whole thing it's one of the best speeches I've heard in a long time and it was given by Brett Favre as he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton Ohio and Favre for any of you who haven't lived under a rock spent 20 years in the NFL as a record-breaking gunslinger with a childlike passion for the game and there's never been anyone quite like him on a sideline. His career, which included 11 Pro Bowls, three All-Pro teams, three MVP awards, and NFL records for completions, 6,300, starts 298, the Iron Man of the NFL, as well as interceptions, my goodness, he had plenty of them, 336, and fumbles, 166, and sacks, 525. He had records for everything, the good and the bad. And that's the thing about Brett Favre. He'd tell you every time, if you ain't throwing interceptions, you ain't throwing. And you got to take risks and you got to take the consequences with it and go back in there and lead the guys again. And it all culminated again this entire career with a speech. But by the way, you're limited to only 12 minutes. But he broke this record too, 36 minutes. The longest speech ever at Canton. And as only Favre could do, no one wanted to pull the mic from him. Let's take a listen to it. By the way, the first thing you got to start out with is those crazy Packer fans because they came in droves. Take a listen to them because they wouldn't let Brett Favre start. And I've watched a lot of these. I've never seen it happen that long. It was like a minute and a half, and they wouldn't let him start, and everybody's practically crying on the stage. Because the affection this guy and the bond this guy created with his fans was unlike anything I've ever seen. But why? Thank you, Canton. Thank you, Hall of Fame. Thank you, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Believe me, I'm blessed. I, I'm an extremely blessed man. I look at my family. Um... What a lucky man. To play a game that I love so much for 20 years, to have all the wonderful things happen, what a blessing. To share in that 
and that joy with you guys here tonight. Uh, what an incredible night, what an incredible week. And having my wife introduce me was an easy choice, considering she was there long before my first touchdown pass, long after the last. And then he went on to talk about the first big day in his life that changed his life, his first NFL game, the first one he ever saw, and also quickly thereafter, the second biggest day of his life, which happened at the hinge and heel of that first day. December 18th, 1983. I was 14 years old. My dad took my older brother Scott and I to, to see the last regular season game the Saints would play that year as they were playing the Rams. Now, I was pretty certain at 14 years old of what I was going to do in my future, and that was I was going to be the next Roger Stallback or Archie Manning or Joe Montana. Um, but this was the first and only game that I would ever see in person. And if the Saints won this game, they would have made the playoffs for the first time in franchise history. So it was a pretty electric crowd. And as we sat in our seats prior to kickoff, the crowd stood and they pointed in the direction of the Saints tunnel. And as I stood, I saw this long, gray-haired, scruffy-beard player emerging from the tunnel. And I knew then and there, as goosebumps ran up my arm and the hair on the back of my neck stood up, that that was what I was destined to do and be. I wanted to be that player. Well, that player happened to be none other than Kenny Stabler. I, I knew that, of course, I didn't have many choices. It was football, baseball, or bust for me. I didn't have many choices. But I knew then and there that I wanted to be and feel what Kenny Stabler was feeling. What an exciting moment for me. The other part about this story that's important is when we returned home that night, what we didn't know is our mother had set up a surprise birthday party for my older brother, Scott, who was turning 17. Well, I unknowingly entered the house first to a large eruption of surprise, and of course it was not my birthday. And as you can imagine, a 14-year-old boy uh, in that situation with all his classmates there was red-faced and embarrassed, and I was looking for the quickest way to get to my bedroom. So as I bolted and ducked my head and made my way through all of our classmates, there was one person that caught my eye and one person only. Well, it didn't matter. I went and hid my room, and as I got up the nerve to come out later, that person and I, we played basketball, we, we talked. We played basketball, we talked. And several days later, as we used to say back in the day, we started going together. Well, that person happened to be my future wife, Deanna. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this speech about his wife, about his kids, but particularly about his dad, because he spent almost 12 minutes on it. He couldn't get through it. He had to stop a bunch of times. You could tell as the camera kept coming on his family, they were laughing the whole time because he was telling stuff about his dad that most of us today would be appalled at because his dad believed in a sort of old style, tough love. But my goodness, you know one thing, this family believed in it. We might not believe in it now, but boy, the camera didn't lie. Brett Favre's voice didn't lie, and you're going to hear a guy tell a story about his dad and how he couldn't have been anything without him. 
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Brett Favre, and if, you, if you're if you a crying type, uh, get a tissue, because uh, he made the whole place cry. Again, Lee Habib, this is Our American Stories. Brett Favre, his Hall of Fame induction speech. It doesn't get better than this, folks. A little boy from Kiln, Mississippi, a place in the middle of nowhere, becomes world famous. And again, without his dad, it couldn't have happened. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating Brett Favre's life, basically, the only way you can, by listening to him say thanks to all the people who'd gotten him where he got, and as you'll learn in this speech, he had a lot to be thankful for. There were a bunch of people along his life without whom he could not have made it, and again and again, he will let all of us and remind all of us that how we treat other people along their path can make the difference, particularly when we show a belief in another person. Because Brett will tell you, he didn't have much belief in himself. Where he was from, his size, he does not exactly look like an NFL quarterback. He doesn't have that 6'5 Peyton Manning frame. No, sir. But somehow, he had something inside him that people spotted, nurtured, and developed. And that first person who he just mentioned, the aforementioned woman that he met, and played basketball with way into the night, into the next day, and herself, practically a world-class athlete, having survived cancer. Well, you're going to hear the story. His wife survived cancer, and she's now running, she's now doing Ironman competitions. Pretty tough. And toughness runs in this family. So here's Brett Favre on his wife, Deanna. By far the strongest and most courageous person I know. She's a wonderful mother of two daughters. An exceptional athlete, not only then, but now, as she most recently is competing in an Ironman in the next two months, which is incredible. Definitely a strong woman of faith. She fought cancer in the public eye, and not only won, but she managed, managed to inspire so many, including myself, along the way. In the process, she formed her own foundation that has helped countless women in their fight with breast cancer as well. And I'll say this, she's definitely the best-looking grandmother I have ever seen. As our two grandsons are here, Parker and AJ, and I know they're ready to go to bed and they want Paul to stop talking right now. But I, 
One more thing about my wife. She's as beautiful today. And I'm not going to say her age because I got in trouble last year in Green Bay for saying that. But she's as beautiful today as she was December 18, 1983 in my living room. Uh, Paul Paul kept on talking all right. And after talking about his daughters, he did a shout-out to his mother-in-law. And by the way, how often does that happen, a guy doing a shout-out to his mother-in-law? And listen to Favre choke up talking about this lady. My mother-in-law, who for 33, 34 years has been by far my biggest fan, I have never thrown an interception that has been my fault, according to <laughs> according to my mother-in-law, Ann. We all know her as Momo. She's helped raise our kids. She's lived with us in New York, in Minnesota, in Green Bay. And she's helped raise grandkids, other people's kids, you name it. She's one of the most patient and loving women you'll ever love. He's choking up here. Not even halfway through. Uh, help me out here. And then it was on to his mother, Bonita, and what she taught him about life and about everything else. My mother, who just recently had her hip replaced, and by no means was she going to be put on waivers for this. She was going to be here. She is here. My mother taught me that being there for your children... My mother taught me that being there for your children is absolutely important. I never, not one time, remember my parents ever not being there at a sporting event, any school function, you name it. They were always there. We ate dinner together. We ate breakfast together. We rode to school together. We did everything together. And that's something that has been lost in this generation. I watched my mother teach special education at Hancock North Central High School for many, many years. And at that time, I didn't appreciate the patience and the type of person that it takes to to do that type of job. But, But I learned by watching her and being around her students that treating everyone as an equal and with respect is not only important but essential. So, Mom, I say thank you. I love you. Mom was the one who always told us she loved us and was a caregiver. And you had to know my father. He was the heavy-handed one. Um, So it was a good blend, one-two punch. But, Mom, I love you, and thank you so much. And, again, far of time and again stumbled here. We sort of cut out uh, much of that. Uh, And one thing that you got to know, he had no script here. Most of these guys come on pretty scripted. Favre just won it like he did when he pulled back in the huddle. I mean, there was a play. But what made Favre great always 
is what happened when the play broke down. You almost got the sense he wanted it to break down because in chaos, this guy was just great. And the defense didn't know what to do because he knew how to extend a play. And yeah, there'd be some interceptions, but the thrill of watching him in that chaos is, I think, what Packer fans loved about him. And he didn't just dump the ball away like a lot of quarterbacks would and not take the risk. And that warrior spirit spirit in him is why you keep hearing those fans. And this emotional intimacy that you hear, this sort of raw uh, sort of masculinity that has an emotional side, it's a rare thing that you hear a jock talking like this. And he was always like this. And you'd see him on the sidelines hugging guys and tapping them on the butt and encouraging them and yelling at them and loving on them. And he just, you couldn't get enough of him. And guys loved playing for and with Brett Favre. Here he is on his brother's and his sisters. My two brothers, Scott and Jeff, my sister Brandy, they're sitting here in the front row. I think they all would agree. I love them so much. It was, it was definitely a fun childhood. We competed. We fought. We ate. We competed. We fought. We ate. We loved each other at the end of the day. And we got up the next morning and we started it all over again. But it was wonderful, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I love you guys so much. Thank you. We competed, we fought, we ate. We competed, we fought, we ate. We loved one another. And then we got up all <laughs> in the morning and did it all over again. My goodness, what a great childhood. What a lucky guy. And what a lucky guy to grow up where he grew up, with the family he grew up, at the time he grew up. This is Lee Habib. This is Brett Favre in his own voice talking about his life, giving thanks. And by the way, we like to share those kind of stories with you because you don't hear them anywhere. This is a clip and then you go to the murder and the mayhem. But this is real life. This is how we all try and live our lives. lives. And Brett Favre did his best to lead with joy, with passion. And again, it's why all those Packer fans trekked to Canton, Ohio. And I mean, they filled the stadium with them. They had to do it in an outdoor stadium. I never saw anything like it. And Brett, well, he knows Packer fans, so he wasn't surprised. When we come back, we told you he was going to tell us about his dad. He did. You're going to hear it. And much more. You're going to hear about his coaches, too. All of them, because he names all of them. And then the players, because he calls them all up, and he calls them out by name. And they're all smiling. Every single one of them made it. All of them made it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Brett Favre's story, in his own words, after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Brett Favre's Hall of Fame speech in Canton, Ohio. We're bringing it all to you. I didn't have the heart to edit any of this out. Who the heck am I to do that? Who the heck is this team to do that? I couldn't stop watching the whole thing. That's why we bring these things to you. Because my goodness, this just pumped me up by the time it was over. I was crying, but a really good cry. And you watch the people walk out like they just left a great concert. You could just watch the audience rushing out and then these fireworks. And you watched all the athletes coming together like you hadn't seen. And Favre's back slapping all of them. And he's just one of those guys. One of those guys. And then it was his dad. And he starts off by telling the story of the day he found out his father died. He had a game in Oakland, and he played that game because he knew his dad would have wanted him to. Don't abandon the team. It's sort of a military ethos. And so he honored his father's legacy by playing that game. And it ended up being the greatest performance of his life. And the whole country watched it knowing what had happened. And the Oakland fans, by the way, are not known for being gracious. But the ovation they gave him and the players and the respect they afforded him was really remarkable. You don't see it in sports. You don't equate grace in sports that often. But he won in Oakland and was flying back to Mississippi for the funeral with his bride and with friends. He was given a special escort by the Oakland police. And a special plane was chartered by some friends. And here he is talking about that that tough flight back home to bury his dad. On our flight back, it was a long flight. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of emotions. As we had just won the game, and, and it was probably the best game that I'd ever played in. But that really didn't matter at that point. And we laughed. We cried. We tried to sleep. We laughed and we cried. And One time in particular, Deanna says to me, and you had to know my father. My father was short on praise and long on tough love. if If he was ever to praise me, I was not to hear it. It was always, you can do better. He was always pushing me to be better. That was okay. Never did I hear him say, son, you've arrived. You're the best. That was awesome great game. It was always, yeah, but. So Deanna says to me on the plane, you know, your dad had said to me that he had hoped or could not wait for the day that you were inducted into the Hall of Fame so he could introduce you. And up until that moment, I had never thought about the Hall of Fame. And I mean no disrespect to the Hall of Fame. I say this with the utmost respect for all you guys. I had dreamed of playing the NFL, believe me, way more than I thought about my, my schoolwork. I thought about being Archie Manning, running around throwing underhand passes. I thought about being my childhood favorite, Roger Stallback, throwing it to Preston Pearson or Drew Pearson, handing it off to Tony Dorsett, being Kenny Stabler coming out of the tunnel. I had thought of those things so many times, but I never thought of the Hall of Fame until that moment. And so a new goal had entered my mind then and there. And I said to myself, I will make it to the Hall of Fame. And his father was a coach. And here he is talking about that dimension and that aspect of their relationship. 
He taught me toughness. Boy, did he teach me toughness. Trust me, there was no room for crybabies in our house. He taught me teamwork. And by all means, no player was ever more important than a team. And my father, for those who don't know, chose to run the wishbone, which some of you younger generation people do not even know what that is, but it never entailed throwing. But that was the type of coach he was, and that was the type of dad he was. He would never showcase his son's talents or anyone else's talents for their good rather than the team's good. And so then in there, in that moment on that plane, I was determined for selfish reasons to get to this point, to acknowledge how important he was. I would not be here before you today without my father. There's no doubt whatsoever. And one last story about his dad. And never underestimate the importance of being there for your boy. One more thing about my father, and this is something I've never told anyone, including Deanna. My dad was my high school football coach. He was the head football coach. He coached me and my two brothers. But I, I, didn't, I never had a car growing up. I always rode to and from school with my father in his truck, and so he was always the last to leave the building because he had to turn the lights off, lock up, and then we made our way home. So it was the last high school football game of my high school career. And although I don't remember how I played before, and I don't remember how I played in the last game, what I do remember is sitting outside the coach's office, say on a Wednesday, waiting for my father to come out so we could leave. It was dark. And I overheard my father talking to the three other coaches and heard him And I I assume I didn't play as well the previous week only because of what he said. And he said, I can assure you one thing about my son. He will play better. He will redeem himself. I know my son. He has it in him. And I never let him know that I heard that. I, I never said that to anyone else. But I thought to myself, that's a pretty good compliment, you know. My chest kind of swole up. And I, again, I never told anyone, but I, I never forgot that statement and that comment that he made to those other coaches. And I want you to know, Dad, I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get through it. Uh, But I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself and make him proud. And I hope I succeeded. (laughs) And then he just had to take a break, as you could tell. And we all did. I got to tell you, the set, when it came back to ESPN, every single guy is crying. Every single guy. Anyway, then he goes on to thank a lot of other people. And you're going to get to this part of the speech. And it's all these strangers, these coaches, who just love on him. But tough love. They wanted to see the best Brett Favre he could be. 
And I think too often we're, look, I love our country, I love our people, and I love our parents, but I think sometimes we go overboard in a few praise of our kids. We're creating entitled children. And maybe his dad went the other extreme and didn't say, I love you enough. But my goodness, listen to that. Listen to it. And listen, you had to see the, the pictures of the family members and the friends and the pride he had in his dad and the pride his dad had in him. And the performance he got out of his son. He got the best out of his son. And in the end, his parents, that's our job. I mean, we got to love our kids. We got to love them enough to sometimes discipline them. And Brett Favre's dad was not afraid to do that. The mom provided the love. The dad provided the discipline. As he put it, it was a great blend. And it worked for him. And when we come back, we're going to hear about those other men in his life. The coaches who believed in him and gave him a shot. And in the end, one man, one businessman who gave him a shot in the NFL. When no one else thought he should be there. And again, Favre will break down one or two more times here. But it's raw, and it is real. And we all did with him, those of us who watched it. And when we come back, more with Brett Favre. His gratitude, evident. His love, evident. The Canton Hall of Fame speech that we're bringing to you here on Our American Story. Celebrating the career of Brett Favre in Brett Favre's words. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and our final segment and installment of Brett Favre's great speech at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. A 20-year career in the NFL, he smashed every record, the good ones and the bad ones. 11 Pro Bowls, three MVP awards, and in this particular part of the speech, he went on to thank some of his coaches, and one in particular was special. And it was a coach at Southern Miss. He didn't get picked by any of the big programs. He got only one scholarship offer. And it wasn't an SEC school right up the road, right here in Oxford, Mississippi, Ole Miss. No. It was little old Southern Miss in Hattiesburg. There are two coaches in particular that were at Southern Miss at the time that meant more than anyone. Mark McHale was offensive line coach. And Mark was the recruiting recruited the, the area of the Mississippi Gulf Coast in which I played. And he fought tooth and nail to get me a scholarship, and it came down to the last hour. And when I say last hour, I literally mean last hour. And he fought, and he believed in me, and I thank him so much. He's coaching high school football back in West Virginia, probably watching right now. So, Coach, I thank you so much for believing in me and sticking it out giving me that opportunity. And the second coach is a guy who has since passed away, and his name is Thamus Coleman. And as we called him back then, Famous Thamus, was a great guy. And I found out this story, this was a story that Ron Wolf would later tell me after I started playing in Green Bay. He came down after my senior year to watch film of my senior season. And I believe Ron at the time was with the Jets and was looking for a quarterback. 
And he, after he watched his, his film of my senior year upon leaving the building, famous Coleman said, well, Ron, what did you think? And Ron Wolf said, not that impressed. We said, I'm not sure if you know, Brett had a really bad car wreck right before the start of this season. He lost 34 inches of his intestines. He fractured a vertebrae in his back. Not only is he, was he not supposed to play, we didn't think he would. And he suffered other injuries as well. But he did start four years for us, and I encourage you to go back in and watch the three previous years. Well, Ron Wolf took his advice and went back in and watched the film. And upon leaving, famous Coleman said, well, what did you think? And as I like to say, the rest is history. Without that coach going the extra yard, there goes Brett Favre's NFL career. And then it took one businessman, Ron Wolf. He was the GM of the Packers, the man who turned the Packers around. And one man, one woman can always make a difference, folks. In fact, they almost always do. And when he takes over, he brings in this young guy named Brett Favre. And here is Brett talking about the general manager. And you don't hear athletes talk about GMs like this. Ron Wolf is the single most important person to the Packers' rebirth than any other person out there. Player, coach, GM. It had been almost 25 years since the Packers had had any success when Ron Wolf took over. And since then, we all know what the Packers have done. Without Ron Wolf, Mike Holmgren would not have coached in Green Bay. There would not have been a Brett Favre. There would not have been a Favre to Sharp and Driver and Brooks, Freeman, Chimura, Keith Jackson, Dorsey Levins, Edgar Bennett, Frank Winters, Santana Dotson, Andre Wright. The list goes on and on. The single biggest free agent acquisition in NFL history is Reggie White. And as I like to say, Ron Wolf made it cool to come to Green Bay. So I thank you, Ron, for believing in me, seeing something in me that others didn't see, probably including myself, and sticking your neck out there for one of the riskiest and craziest trades in NFL history. When you decided to trade a first-round pick for me uh, with Atlanta. So I say thank you, Ron. I love you. You mean more to me than anyone. And he said it a few times. These people stuck their neck outs for him, and they believed in him. So anytime you get a chance and you can stick your neck out for someone and then follow that up with some real belief, oh my goodness, you can change a life, folks. Here's Brett Favre on Coach Mike Holmgren. The man he hired, Mike Holmgren, the greatest head coach I've ever played for. I see him sitting with my good friend Matt Hasselback. We both can attest. He's one of the toughest and most demanding coaches you will ever be around. He's a true perfectionist, and I'm sure Steve and Joe would say the same thing. But he was a very fair guy, and I know that 
because could you imagine being Mike Holmgren and leaving San Francisco? Tremendous success, coaching two of the greatest players of all time, Joe Montana and Steve Young, and getting stuck with Brett Favre. <laughs> now, I thought I was good, but I had no idea what good was. And I am so thankful that Mike chewed my ass but believe enough in me to give me another chance. Because there were many times he could have and should have pulled me. And had he done that, there's probably someone else standing here before you talking. So I'm thankful, Mike, for you and believing in me. I thought I was good, but I had no idea what good was. And look at the gratitude he has for this man that while he was going through that crucible, he had to be cursing Mike Holmgren every other day. Do you know who I am? I'm Brett Favre. And Holmgren just right back in his grill. Right back in his grill. You can do better. But never taking him off the field. Wow. He then asked the players who he played with to stand up, and they all showed up. It was, well, it was a testimony to Favre's leadership talents. I want... The guys that I played with to stand up. I'd love to call each and every one of you out by name. And this is college too. If there's one, stand up. If there's 100, stand up. I love you guys. I love you. Let me tell you. And this may not be a secret. I love playing with you guys. It was a blast. I love carrying you off on the fireman carry. I love tackling you. I love slapping Marco in the ass. I loved it. I loved it. And he loved it too. And for everyone up here, they would all agree that's what it's all about. Not necessarily slapping them on the ass, but loving your teammates, competing fighting, scratching, tough losses, tough wins. Man, that's what it's all about. And in the end, he closed it out by talking about the things he was most proud of. Here's Brett Favre closing out one of the great speeches ever at Canton. What I'm most proud of, what I think about most, has nothing to do with statistics. Although, who would have ever thought that a young man from Kill, Mississippi whose father ran the wishbone, would hold every passing record in NFL history at one time. Pretty doggone amazing, if you ask me. But, but, what I, but I, that's not what makes me most proud. What makes me most proud is how I played the game. And being real, authentic, and spontaneous, and loving the game, to me, is what it was all about. I couldn't believe that they paid us and that I was racking up statistics like I was. I was just having fun. And I'm most proud of that. And so, when I look back over my 20 years, I can honestly tell you, I can't tell you a lot, but I can honestly tell you that I hold no regrets. Did, Did we win every game? No. Did I make every throw? No. Did I make mistakes? More than I care to count. But I can say this, there was never one time 
where I did not give it all I could. You know, and I, I've said this to my daughters, and I, I say it to any young person out there who is playing sports. Don't ever look back and regret not doing your best. Don't ever look back, because there are no second chances. When you're 25 and you wish you would have done something in high school, it's too late. Don't cheat yourself. Don't cheat your teammates. Work as hard as you possibly can. Lay it all on the line, and whatever happens, happens. But you won't look back and regret. I don't regret anything. It's not to say it was perfect. I don't regret anything, and that's what I'm most proud of. And I say thank you again. You know, most people fail out of self-sabotage. They just don't give it their all. Some self-doubt, something, some upbringing, who knows what. And Favre's a lucky man. His dad taught him how to give his all. His mom taught him how to keep that human nature and not let the competitive instinct overwhelm everything. Love and surrender. And he did both so well. And that's what people loved about Brett Favre. He surrendered everything on that field, and yet he did it with love. The best of the masculine and feminine, and whatever either of those things even mean anymore. It was all there. This is Lee Habib. Brett Favre's extraordinary speech, pretty much unedited. For you, this is Our American Stories.